You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Hello, hello, and welcome back, or if you're new around here, welcome. Um, I'm so excited to be with you guys again. I don't know why, but I feel like I haven't talked to you guys in like forever. Maybe this was just a really long week for me. I mean, I don't know why it would feel that way, though. Nothing bad happened. In fact, my week was pretty uneventful. I think I like went to the store a couple times and then I went to a physical therapy appointment. (laughs) But maybe that's why it felt so long because it was pretty mundane. Who knows? (laughs) Anyways, what have you guys been up to? Are you having a mild winter where you're at? I swear Utah's winter has been so mild this year. Listen, I'm not complaining. I hate winter. I hate snow, so I'm totally okay with it. But Brian's been moaning and groaning about the ski season and how we're not going to have enough water this summer. Okay, the water thing I can get on board with, but the ski thing, eh, I'm impartial. I could care less. But maybe I shouldn't knock it since I've never actually tried it. But I can tell you, sorry, I can tell you that it combines two things that I really, really hate, snow and heights. So I don't think I'd like it all too much. I honestly think the ski lift, like the ski ride lift up the mountain sounds more terrifying to me than the skiing itself. When I was a kid, I had a fear of heights. When I turned 13, I convinced myself that that year, that was going to be the year of my awakening of sorts. So I really was trying to push myself out of my comfort zone. And so that year on my birthday at the state fair, I went on the little kids Ferris wheel. It was like, I don't know, 20 to 30 feet high up at like the tallest. So it's not as huge as like a ginormous one. Um, but it doesn't matter because I cried the entire (laughs) time. And since then, my fear of heights has only intensified. I can't do glass elevators. I can't do escalators. They scare the crap out of me. Even like when I'm in the movie theater and they do like a scene where someone is like on a roof and like the camera pans down. Oh my gosh. It gives me so much anxiety, so much vertigo. I literally can't even handle it. (laughs) I'm getting pansier and pansier with age. Maybe one day, who knows, maybe one day I will conquer my fear of heights, but that day won't be today, I can tell you that much. (laughs) Um, Before we begin today's case, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. If you're not already following us on social media, well, why not? You can find me on Instagram at mysteriesstillunsolved. You can chat with me, comment on my cases, share your ideas and theories about the cases that we cover. You can suggest a case for me to do. I love when you guys do that. In fact, the case that we're going to be covering today is a listener suggestion. So yeah, if you're not already following, go do it. I'll wait. Seriously. Go do it. Yep, just go on Instagram. Get on that search bar, type in at mystery still unsolved. Yep. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. Yep. Do you see that one with the red background and the cute cartoon version of me holding a magnifying glass? Click that one. Uh-huh. Follow button. Perfect. Now, was that so hard? Make sure that you answer the polls on the case today and I will share the results later on in the week. Um, Also, you can hop on there and you can message me all of the things that you love about me. That'd be really great. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, so now on to today's case. All right, so for today's episode, we will be diving into the case of the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Um, I read somewhere that this is apparently the second oldest missing persons case in Texas, which 
I don't really know if I'm buying that. First off, because I couldn't find anywhere who they claimed was the first unsolved missing persons case. And if you can't provide the name of the first, then how am I supposed to clarify that this is the second? And also, are you really trying to tell me that after years and years of Texas being existence, I mean, it was part of the wild, wild west. It 1984, we are just at number two. Yeah, I don't know about that. But anyway, that's what one source claims claims it's the second oldest unsolved person's case, so there's information. Take it with a grain of salt. I don't really think I believe it, though, just in my personal opinion. <laughs> um, I had heard of this case previously um, to being suggested it by one of you lovely, lovely listeners, but I had not really, you know, rolled up my sleeves and researched the crap out of it until this past week, and whoa. It is so interesting, and I really, really think that you guys are going to be so intrigued by it as well. This case takes place on December 23rd, 1974 in Fort Worth, Texas. A woman named Mary Rachel Trelicka, who went by her middle name Rachel, which is what I will call her for the remainder of this episode, um, Rachel was 17. That morning on December 23rd, 1974, Rachel woke up and decided that she wanted to do some last minute Christmas shopping. Even though Rachel was 17, she was married to a man named Thomas or Tommy Trelicka, who had a two-year-old son from a previous relationship. So Rachel was not only a wife at 17, but she was also a stepmom. Rachel and Tommy's love story is actually pretty interesting in like a Jerry Springer type of way. Tommy had actually dated and been engaged to Rachel's older sister, Deborah, and that's how they met. Yeah. Deborah later claimed that her relationship with Tommy wasn't at all very serious, but it's going to be that engagement part for me though, sweetie. (laughs) Deborah says she never saw the relationship as being one that was long-term, like her relationship with Tommy. Um, But I don't think I'm going to pick up what she's throwing down. I don't care how unserious you claim your relationship with Tommy was. For him to turn around and date your little sister and eventually marry your little sister, that had to have caused a little tension or at least raise one of her eyebrows. (laughs) But Deb continues to attempt to convince us that she really was unbothered by their relationship, so much so that Deborah actually lived with Rachel and Tommy after they got married. Come again, say what? Honestly, this part of the story is an unsolved mystery in and of itself. I could probably talk about it for hours and hours on end, and we haven't even gotten to the bulk of the true unsolved mystery that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Um, But it appears we have a mystery within a mystery, but we haven't the time to properly unpack this right now, so I'm just going to move on for now. All right, so Rachel woke up and wanted to do some Christmas shopping. So she walked down the hall into her guest bedroom where her sister Deb was sleeping. Remember, Deb is her husband's ex-girlfriend and also her older sister. Sorry, I know that I said I was going to stop talking about it, but I just really want the reality of that to sink in. (laughs) Anyway, she asked Deborah if she wanted to join her as she picked up a few things for Christmas. Deborah said no. She didn't have work that day. It was like one of her first days off the entire holiday season. And so she was really, really looking forward to just sleeping in and not doing anything, <laughs> just relaxing. And I can totally, I can totally appreciate her chill. Um, because Deborah didn't want to go though, Rachel called up her friend Renee. Renee was 14 years old and the two of them were really, really close. In fact, their families were super close. The two families would often go on fishing trips and camping trips together in the summertime. So yeah, they were really, really close and they had known each other for years. Renee said that she would go with Rachel, but she wanted to be sure that they were going to be back around four o'clock because her boyfriend was going to take her to a Christmas party later that evening. And she wanted to make sure that she had enough time to get home and take a shower and get glammed up for it. She was especially excited because her longtime boyfriend, Terry Mosley, had just that morning gifted her a very special gift, a promise ring. Terry had 
two younger sisters, one of them being nine-year-old Julie Mosley. Julie had overheard that Renee was going to go to the mall and she wanted to join. Julie called her mother and begged her to let her join Renee and Rachel. At first, Julie's mom said no. I mean, she trusted Renee, but she didn't really know Rachel or Rachel's family very well. And so she just wasn't really comfortable with the idea of Renee riding around in the car of someone that she didn't know. Um, Also, Julie was like nine years old. She didn't have any money. And it was just all kind of random for Julie to join them. And I think that the mom could probably tell that like the two older girls probably didn't really want Julie to go (laughs) Um, and were just kind of humoring her. But against her mother's wishes, Julie just pleaded and pleaded and pleaded with her mom until finally her mom caved. She said, Mom, if I don't get to go to the mall, I'm going to be home all day, all alone. I'm going to be so bored. So Julie's mom eventually relented to the pleas and said, sure, you can go, but make sure that you're back when I get home from work around 6 o'clock. Renee agreed because, as we know, Renee wanted to be back around four to get ready for the Christmas party. All three of the girls ended up going to the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth around noon. Rachel, of course, being 17, was the one driving, and she was driving her 1972 Oldsmobile 98, which, if you've never driven an Oldsmobile, we had one for a bit, like when we first got married, and driving that thing is like driving a boat. It is huge. Anyway, Rachel parked her car on the raised section of the parking lot. So it's not really a parking garage more than like there's like a bottom level. And then like if you go around this corner, you can like there's an incline and then you can go on like this upper parking lot. The girls' families had all expected them to be home by four. So when four o'clock came and went, the family started to get a little worried. And then six o'clock rolled around and the families began to panic. So Rachel's brother, Rusty, as well as Rachel's mom, decided to drive over to the mall and just take a look around for themselves. This was going well past, oh, the girls must have just lost track of time, to maybe the girl's car broke down or maybe they're hurt. And remember, 1974, no cell phones. They're not just able to text the girls where are you at? And get a response. So I can only imagine that they were terrified. Rusty, Rachel's little brother, was only 11 years old at the time, and they were actually able to locate Rachel's car pretty quickly, but there was no sign of Rachel or any of her friends. They did see that the car was locked up and the items that Rachel had picked up from layaway had been placed on the floor of the back seat in an organized fashion. So clearly the girls had been there to drop off some of their things, But where were the girls? This concerned Rachel's mother, who, along with Rusty, promptly began to walk through the mall, asking employees of stores if they'd remember seeing the girls. Unfortunately, because it was December 23rd, one of the busiest shopping days of the year, they weren't really getting any solid information from any of the employees, and they weren't getting very many leads either. A lot of the girls' family and friends joined Rachel's mom and brother to assist in looking for the girls, but when they But when that was done, to no avail, eventually they decided to call the police and get them involved. The police joined the search party at the mall and took down three missing persons reports. The police searched Rachel's vehicle and all around the mall, but they were unsuccessful in finding any evidence that would point them in the direction of where the girls might have gone. The next day... Tommy received a pretty strange letter in his mailbox. And this letter had actually been like mailed through the post office. It had like the stamp and the tag and everything. It wasn't just placed in there. It was actually mailed through the postal service. The letter was addressed to Thomas A. Trelicka, which was kind of weird because Tommy had never really gone by the name Thomas. All right. So let me tell you what the letter said. It said, quote, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. End quote. Obviously, you can tell from the title of this episode, the girls never came home. There were several things about this letter that were very suspicious to people who were close to the girls. First off, the handwriting. 
The handwriting is nothing near Rachel's handwriting, and this is verified by not only Tommy, but Rachel's mother. Also, the L in Rachel looked as if it had initially been written as an, a lowercase e and then written over with an L. So who misspells their own, own name? That's pretty suspicious. The letter was obviously sent to the FBI for handwriting analysis, not once, not twice, but three times over the last four decades, and all three times the results have been inconclusive, which is fancy speak for they don't have enough evidence to say it definitely was her handwriting, but they don't have enough evidence to say it definitely wasn't her handwriting. Also, something to note is that these are young girls. Why would they need to go to Houston, especially over Christmas break, when people typically want to be with their families, you know, like their new husband. They'd only been, she'd only been married to her husband for six months. So like this would be their first Christmas together. I don't think she would have missed that for the world. Um, Renee definitely would not have want, wanted to miss her first Christmas with her new like promise ring kind of fiance boyfriend. And don't even get me started on Julie, a nine-year-old going away for Christmas voluntarily. I don't think so. On December 23rd, a nine-year-old would have only one thing on her mind, Santa Claus. Not to mention, the letter did not contain a return address. There was simply a postal code, which seems to have been intentionally smudged, leading them to believe that the orchestration of this letter was all just a cover-up. The postal code that had been written on the letter was six or sorry, 76083. So that specific zip code was for a city located at least 100 miles away from Fort Worth. And the Postal Service confirmed to the police that there's just no way a letter that had actually been mailed at that postal code would have made it to Tommy and Rachel's house in less than 24 hours. It's literally physically impossible for that to arrive from that city to Tommy's house that fast. To this day, Tommy believes that there is just no way that Rachel wrote this letter. In my personal opinion, I think the letter was written either by a coerced Rachel or someone tried to copy her handwriting. I think that addressing the letter to Thomas, if Rachel was the one who actually like wrote it under coercion, may have been her last, her last ditch effort for Rachel to clue her husband in on something not being right. But that's just my own thought. The police had no real suspects or leads to go off of either. There were a few witnesses here and there. One witness claims that they saw the girls get pushed into a yellow pickup truck, but the woman who left that tip refused to give her name. The police did share the information with the public anyway and asked the woman to please come forward so that they could obtain an official report, like an official eyewitness report, but either the woman never saw this plea on the news or she was afraid. Either way, she never did end up coming forward to give the police more details on what she had supposedly seen. Another witness claims he saw Rachel and the girls at a record store. He said he spoke to Rachel briefly, but he did notice that the girls seemed to be with a guy that he didn't recognize. As he spoke to Rachel, one of his friends, he noticed that the other two girls were comfortably talking to this other dude. Some claimed the girls were lured away from a well-populated area with a security guard because apparently like a couple moms and like a grandpa had seen that happened. Um, shortly after the girls went missing, police got a tip from six other girls who had all applied to like some record store. And I'm not sure if it was the same record store that Rachel's friend had like chatted her up a bit. Um, but apparently all six of these girls, after turning in a resume to this record store, had begun receiving obscene and crass phone calls who it ended up being the manager of that store. And like, that's how he'd gotten their number was from their resumes. Um, when the police were like kind of figuring out that whole situation, um, they were going through the resumes and they found that Rachel had recently applied to work at this same record store. But it is unknown if she was experiencing 
the types of phone calls that the other six girls had experienced because she just had never mentioned it to anyone. She never mentioned it to Tommy or Deborah or her mom or anything. Police were also looking into well-known sex sex offenders in the area um, just to see if they could have possibly had anything to do with the girls missing. Um, So they went through that sex offender list one by one until they had exhausted the list and had come up with zero leads. In 1975, the three families, after becoming close over the last year and just kind of bonding over their shared um, awful experience, they actually decided to pull in and combine their resources and hire a private investigator because they weren't satisfied with the work that the police officers were doing. Uh, The man that they decided to hire was named Joe Swaim. And from what I can find through my research, Joe was actually incredibly dedicated to solving this case. He held press conferences all the time to keep the girls' names alive and in the media and on Fort Worth residents' minds. By doing this, He put, as you can imagine, a lot of heat on the police department, so much so that the police department eventually relented and gave Joe their files regarding the girl's case, which, as we know, is practically unheard of when it comes to an open investigation. So good on you, Joe. Good on the police officers for giving Joe the information that they had so that Joe could just kind of carry it a little bit further. Um, unfortunately, though, in 1979, uh, Joe Swain committed suicide by overdosing on some pills. From what I read, I don't know if it was in his will or if it was just like by word of mouth, but someone said that upon Joe's death, he apparently wanted all of the files and research that he had conducted on the girl's disappearance destroyed. So even though that sounds sketch AF and it was like four years worth of this man's life's work, the files were in fact destroyed. And I just want to say that I find that to be incredibly unfortunate because imagine he had done four years worth of work and now that's just all gone. Imagine like the golden nuggets that could might have been in there And somebody could have taken over it and kind of like given the case a whole new perspective. I don't know. It's just, it's a shame. It's really just a shame. All right. So seven years after the girl's disappearance. So this takes us to 1981. Another witness came forward claiming to have seen the three girls being pushed into a van. The man said that he approached the man who was, you know, doing the said shoving of the girls into his van and he questioned him like dude what the heck are you doing and the man who was doing the shoving turned to him and said this is a family manner mind your own business my girls always get sad when we have to leave the mall the male witness said that the man seemed very convincing and probably pretty freaking terrifying so he left it alone i mean who was he to get involved in a family matter right chilling Anyway, that story was never able to be officially corroborated by other witnesses. So unfortunately, police were still, after seven years, at square one with this investigation. This case continued to drag on for years and years with no solid information and no leads. Because of this, and because the police didn't really have any success, the case was actually officially closed. It was the conjecture of the police department that the girls must have been runaways. However, in 2001, a little bit of hope reignited this case back up again, causing the case to be officially reopened by the police department. The family and the police were hopeful that because of DNA advancements and advancements in science, um, from 1974 to 2001, that's like a huge difference, that this may just be what they needed to have a breakthrough finally in their case. The police held a huge press conference saying that they were very excited to hopefully find the person responsible for the girl's disappearance. Um, They said that they had 20 new witnesses and many, many new leads that they were going to be working off of. They said they even had a few potential suspects, like that's huge. The police said that based off the research they had done, they truly believed that the girls had been taken either by someone they knew 
or someone that they believed they could trust. They also believed that this person had not worked alone. And this makes sense to me because how else would someone be capable of kidnapping three girls in a public setting without alerting anyone? The police continued that they believed that once the girls had been lured away from the mall by someone that they thought they could trust or someone that they knew, the girls had definitely been met with foul play. The police were very much looking into this case as a homicide rather than a missing persons case. Just, you know, too much time had passed for them to think that the girls could possibly still be alive. I mean, don't get me wrong. They were obviously hopeful that the girls would be found alive, especially for the family's sake. But, I mean, they needed to face the truth, like face reality, and the likelihood of finding them alive was pretty slim at this point. It'd been like, I don't even know. I don't do math, but 2001 minus 1974, whatever that is. Uh, this is so embarrassing. I'm just going to look it up. 2001 minus 1974, 27 years. Yeah, the girls are probably not still alive after 27 years. Um, But they still wanted to at least be able to provide answers to the family. The police sent hundreds of letters to hundreds of coroners in hundreds of different precincts in several states, hoping that those coroners had had like a Jane Doe or maybe two or maybe three that could provide them with some information. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. The next step was to test the DNA that was found on the envelope of the letter that was delivered to Tommy's house. Now, remember, Rachel supposedly wrote this letter to Tommy, but Rachel's DNA could not be found anywhere on the letter or the envelope. The police also ran the DNA through CODIS, and that left them empty-handed as well. In 2001, there was a man who came forward named Bill Hutchins, Bill had been working as a security guard for the Sears store the night the girls had gone missing. Apparently, he had also been a police officer for the Fort Worth Police Department, and he was, like, retired from that. He was working security to just, like, make a little bit of extra money for the holidays. He said that on the night the girls went missing at around 11 p.m., so about seven hours or so after the girls had been reported missing, he said that he got into a verbal altercation with a man in the parking lot who was driving a pickup truck. He said in the front seat of that truck, there were three girls with a man. The youngest of the three girls was sitting right beside the driver, and the oldest of the three girls was sitting on the passenger side. He said he began talking to the guy in the truck, and what started out as a heated altercation ended up being a big misunderstanding. The man and the three girls went on their way. Bill said that the girls seemed to be fine because they were laughing and smiling. This further confirmed to police that the girls must have been taken by someone that they knew well or trusted. Now, you might be wondering why it took Bill decades to provide this information to the police. But the truth is, he had spoken to police about this sighting before, on December 24th, 1974. Yep, the day after the girls went missing. Bill had apparently heard on the news about the three missing girls and how they had been maybe been like forced into a truck, which immediately perked up his memory because he had had a sort of altercation with a man who had three girls in the truck with him the night before. So he immediately called the police and wouldn't you know, shocker, shocker, the police brushed him off and never followed up with him about this information. Bill had gone on living his life. He had assumed the police had brushed him off because perhaps they had had a more promising lead that they were following. But in 2001, when he heard about this case being reopened, the case that he thought had already been closed, he decided to call them in again and to remind them about it. Now, something interesting to know about Bill's encounter with this man is that the man in the truck with the girls had been wearing a security guard's outfit. Bill said that he had never met the security guard before, but Bill had to admit that he usually worked nights and he thought maybe this officer had worked mornings or afternoons, or maybe this unknown man had been impersonating an officer or a security guard as a ruse to gain the girl's trust. These are all things 
that cross his mind. What baffles my mind is how could this tip not be taken more seriously? You would think that they would take information from a former police officer from their department much more seriously. Simply because, I mean, as a retired police officer, he would have been trained to spot things that maybe like the normal person might not spot. But now, I mean, it's been 27 years. Now it's been 44 years. I'm sure that like, even though he's a police officer, his memory has probably dwindled over time. So I don't even know how accurate the details would be 44, 46 years later. Apparently, the police did catch up with this mystery man, and this mystery man claims that he never came in contact with the girls that night, he did not kidnap them, and he had nothing to do with their disappearance, which, duh, obviously he's going to say that, either because he really didn't do it or because he's not going to be like, oh, you got me. All you needed to do was ask, and you got me. Rusty, if you remember, is Rachel's little brother who was 11 at the time of her disappearance. Um, He had been looking into who might have kidnapped and harmed his sister and the other two girls since the day that they went missing. He apparently met a man in 1999 named Dan James. And Dan James approached Rusty because apparently Dan had also been intrigued by this case and had been gathering information details on this case for several years. Rusty decided to talk to Dan and see what kind of new information Dan could provide him with, if any. He just was kind of at that point where he was like, all right, I'll talk to him. Like, what have I got to lose? Dan said there were things about the case the police had overlooked, which Dan felt was a huge error on their part. According to Dan, um, he claimed that he had spoken to witnesses that said that they saw the girls several times that night at varying locations in Fort Worth. Apparently, one sighting happened at a Walmart, another at a gas station, another at a country mart. All of these sightings were always of just Rachel and Renee, though, never of nine-year-old Julie. Dan also believed that whoever kidnapped and harmed the girls had to have been someone that they trusted because it would be pretty difficult to abduct three girls from a crowded place unless it was someone they knew or thought that they could trust, like an authority figure of some kind, say a security guard. Okay, now I want to discuss something that may have been on your mind this entire time. And if it hasn't been on your mind this whole time, can you even consider yourself a true crime lover? It's okay. I'll forgive you this time. (laughs) Just kidding. Anyways, I want to talk about dear old Deborah. You see, Tommy wasn't the only one to receive a letter. Deborah received one too, except her letter didn't come from Rachel or Renee or Julie. Nope. Her letter, in fact, came from the Fort Worth Police Department. Why, you may be asking yourself. Well, Deborah was sent a letter because she was not cooperating with the police department. Let's read what the Fort Worth Police Department had to say, shall we? Dear Deborah, we read your statement in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on January 9th, 2000. You indicated that you had nothing to hide. If this statement is indeed true, we beg and plead with you to fully cooperate with us and the FBI. Please complete the polygraph testing and answer all of its questions. Deborah, please keep in mind that you also have a sister missing. That's the end of the letter. Now, why would Deborah not cooperate with the police and the FBI after all these years? Doesn't she want to know what happened to her missing sister and a close family friend and a little nine-year-old girl? If she didn't have anything to do with it, she should be first in line doing all that she can to figure out what had happened. Well, unless she already knows what happened. Maybe the Tommy and Deborah situation was not as cut and dry as Deborah was attempting to make us believe. Maybe she did still have feelings for Tommy, or maybe she didn't have feelings for him but held resentment towards her sister for dating and then marrying one of her ex-boyfriends ex-fiancés. I mean, you have to admit the whole situation was and still is very, very odd. I mean, isn't there like a sister code? Like, don't wear my clothes and don't date my exes? I mean, I never had a sister, so I don't have like firsthand experience with this or anything, but I'm pretty sure sharing boyfriends 
sharing fiancés is a big no-no. The only thing that keeps me from thinking that she did this on her own would be that every time the girls were seen, or supposedly seen, they were seen with a man. A man pushed them into a van. A man pushed them into a truck. The girls were seen with a male security guard. The girls were seen with a male friend. But police had always believed that this would have only been accomplished successfully if it were a two-man job. Well, what if it wasn't a two-man job after all, but a one-man, one-woman job? Eh, 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 eh. Even Rusty, Deborah and Rachel's own little brother, believes that Deb must have had something to do with Rachel, Renee, and Julie's disappearance. Deborah said in an interview that she is aware that Rusty believes that she is partly partially responsible for the disappearance of the girls. She admits that she and Rusty do not speak anymore. She said that she has nothing to do with the disappearance and has no idea where the girls might be. She claims her best guess on what happened to the three girls is that they had been sold into white slavery, which is a term that I hadn't really heard of before and it kind of took me back a bit so I did a little bit of digging into what that might mean. Uh, The phrase comes from the early 1900s. The story of its origin is basically that um, supposedly Greek and Italian immigrants were luring unsuspecting white women to the south with promises of starting a new life filled with glamour and more money than they could even imagine but once the women got there they were forced into unpaid servitude so essentially white slavery was just their umbrella term for human and sex trafficking and I don't know. Human and sex trafficking happens to all demographics, not just white women. I would say especially it happens to other ethnicities and other racial groups. So I just think it's wild that white um, slavery used to be the term that they used for human and sex trafficking. I just think that's wildly crazy. Anyway, Rusty truly believes that Deborah herself wrote the letter that Tommy got in the mail to try to cover up her tracks of what really happened to the girls, maybe stall and get some more time. I can see where he and the police department are coming from. It's clear that Deborah would have had a motive. Her motive would have been jealousy, obviously, and I don't care. Deb can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk until she's blue in the face, that she was like totes cool with Tommy and Rachel being together. But like I said before, I'm just not really buying what she's selling. Deborah has a motive if she was secretly upset about her sister marrying the man that she was once engaged to. Maybe she wanted to teach Rachel a lesson. Maybe she wanted to teach Tommy a lesson. And the other girls were simply victims of happenstance, literally just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong sister. Some people think that Deborah and Tommy were in cahoots together, but I'm not buying that either. There is no record of Tommy ever owning a truck or a van during that time or knowing anyone who did or owning or having access to a security guard uniform. And I'm pretty sure that if Rachel's friend had met up with her at the record store and seen Tommy, like if they're friends, then obviously he would know what Tommy looks like and he wouldn't just be like, yeah, there was some random guy with them. Like he'd say like, there was a guy with them. It was Rachel's husband. I think if Deborah was involved, she must have had to have hired a male friend to help her carry out this twisted plan. All right. So let's circle back to some of the surviving relatives. But actually before that, I didn't even write this in my notes, but it's just like coming to me right now. I, okay. So the girls were like, Julie, if you want to come with us, you're going to have to ask your mom, which I think was their way of being like, we don't want you to come. And we know that your mom's going to say no. So why don't you go ahead and call her? And so Julie called her mom and Julie's mom initially said no, but Julie had been like begging and pleading to go. And apparently, um, in an interview with Julie's mom, um, she said that she had actually been in the middle of a pretty messy divorce, um, a pretty lengthy and messy custody battle. And so 
she eventually just like relented to Julie's pleas because she just knew that it was like Christmas time and Julie was going to be all alone and she had been going through some tough stuff and she wanted her daughter to have a good day. Um, and so now I'm thinking, is it possible that the reason why the girls felt so comfortable with this man could this man have been Julie's dad? That's basically what I'm getting at. Like, because Renee would have known Julie's dad because Julie's dad is her boyfriend, Terry's dad. And so is that maybe why they were comfortable? I don't know. I didn't even look into that. I just am literally like, it's coming to me as I'm talking to you right now. So take it with a grain of salt, but just another little thing, a little nugget to let marinate in your mind. Just think about it. All right, anyway, so let's circle back to some of the surviving relatives. Rusty, Rachel's little brother, who again was just 11 at the time of the girl's disappearance, has been such a sweetie and he continues to investigate the case of his sister and the other two girls to this day. He wants to figure out what happened to them. Rusty single-handedly saved up $15,000 to hire a dive team to dredge and investigate a lake that was pretty close, about eight miles from the shopping mall where the girls disappeared from. Rusty really believed that the girls might have been in this lake. He had approached the police with this idea, but the police had brushed him off because apparently that's what the Fort Worth Police Department in 1974 was really good at doing, brushing people off with credible things. Um, And wouldn't you know, there was not just one, not two, but three cars found at the bottom of this lake. Is that astounding to anyone else? That just makes me want to like do a double take at any lake that I find myself passing by. Like how many cars are hidden beneath your surface lake? Ugh, yikes. Back home, I lived by a lake and I guarantee, I guarantee because I kind of lived in a sketchy place. I guarantee (laughs) that there are about a half a dozen cars in there. There's gotta be. There's no way there's not at least half a dozen. There might even be a dozen. Anyways, three cars sitting at the bottom of this lake. Rusty had each car brought out of the lake to see if the girls' bodies would be inside. Not that he hoped that they would be inside, but at this point, the families just wanted answers. Each car was recovered, but none held any promising evidence that would lead them further to the truth. Rusty actually got a diving license back in 2018. He wanted to become a professional diver so that he could accomplish these missions by himself. He wouldn't need permission anymore. He wouldn't have to raise money. He could just, any lake he passed by, he could just put on his gear and go in and look. Rusty and his mom were interviewed a few years ago, and they discussed how the disappearance of their loved ones still affect them to this day. Rachel's father was sick with cancer at the time of her disappearance, and he ended up passing away six months after Rachel went missing. On his deathbed, his last words to his family were, don't be sad for me. I'm on my way to see Rachel. Rusty said that when his daughter was young, he took her with him to a job to pick up one of his paychecks. His daughter was around 9 or 10 years old at the time, and his boss, when he saw her, told her that she needed to listen to her gut instincts always and do her best to stay out of compromising situations. He then proceeded to tell her the story about the three missing girls. After he had finished, Rusty told him that Rachel had been his older sister. His boss, like, had never known. Rachel's mother said that she was once at a diner to eat breakfast with her friends. They like met up once a month and the topic in the diner, like with all of the patrons, like that's kind of how the diner was. Like everybody kind of talked to each other. It was like an open discussion. Um, anyways, the topic in the diner turned to missing children. Rachel's mom just kind of plowed through the lunch and as these feelings that she had probably suppressed for a little bit swirled around inside of her. When she took her receipt to the counter to pay, the cashier said, what do you feel about those three missing girls? Referring to the Fort Worth missing trio, Rachel's mom said, I feel like I love them 
because one of them was my daughter. The cashier girl almost like passed out. She felt so terrible for bringing it up. Rusty's daughter is now a young adult and she has confessed to her dad that there are times that she feels the disappearance of her aunt, an aunt that she has never met, basically ruined her life. And Rusty admits that while raising his daughter, he was very, very overprotective and cautious with her. His daughter entered kindergarten with a cell phone in her hand and I mean... I'm trying to think of when that would have been. So he was 11 in 1974. That means he was 21 in 1984. So yeah, like probably just when cell phones had like come out. So imagine this like little kindergartner holding this huge brick of a cell phone. Um, but anyways, she wasn't um, able to do the things that she wanted to do like a typical teenager would want to do, like having sleepovers or going to the mall unsupervised. And Rusty says, when some... When something like that happens to you, you don't want it to happen again, especially to another person that you love. So he admits that he sheltered her because he didn't ever want to lose her. He says, I couldn't handle it if someone I loved disappeared like that on me again. And I can totally relate to Rusty in this sense. I am definitely overprotective of my children and I know that it must stem from my own experience with my younger brother being kidnapped when I was younger. I spoke about my experience briefly in episode 21, Stolen Kids. Um, I'm not going to rehash everything, but just in case like this is your first episode, I want to let you know that my brother was in fact found alive and he was returned back to us fortunately. Um, but I realized that we were extremely, my family was extremely lucky in that sense. It certainly could have very easily gone another way. Um, Terry Mosley, who was the older brother of Julie and the boyfriend of Renee, has said that losing his girlfriend and his little sister has ruined every holiday since for him. He said, you can't possibly enjoy Christmas or Thanksgiving completely when you know that there is an empty chair where your loved one should be. Every year he wonders who Julie would have been? What would her job have been? Would she be married? Would she have children? What would she look like? He said it took him years, probably about six or seven years, to feel any type of joy. And even now, whenever he feels happiness, it is immediately followed by guilt. He asks himself, why should he be happy while his sister continues to be unaccounted for? My heart breaks for these family members who are left with so many unanswered questions. Terry says to those who claim that the girls ran away, he believes that that simply could not be true. He said that the girls had like insisted and kind of hassled him a bit because they wanted him to go to the mall with them. They were so bummed when he chose to go visit a friend in the hospital rather than go to the mall with them, but they understood that he wanted to see his friend before his friend had like an operation. Um, he says that he wishes that he could travel back in time and just go with them. He wonders if a male presence would have changed anything. Could he have protected them? These are the thoughts that torture him late at night and prevent him from getting sleep. The family... The families have endured a lot of heartbreak over the years. Not only do they still seek answers, and there's literally like no leads after 44 years, but the families have had to change their phone numbers multiple times because people, really crappy people, will prank call them pretending to be the girls, which seriously, seriously, what is wrong with people? Could you not show a little compassion and, I don't know, not be a giant asshole? These people have gone through so much and now they have to put up with these losers. Like, where's the human decency? It makes me so livid and sick and disgusted. Every Christmas, Rachel's mom sets up three um, angels in her front yard to remind the residents of Fort Worth about their missing three girls. When asked what closure means to Rusty, he responded, closure would be getting the person or persons involved in their disappearance to be put in prison for life or sentenced to the death penalty. And it's Texas, so you know they love the death penalty over there, so I'm pretty sure that he'd get it. 
I'd love to have the girls' bodies recovered so we could have a proper burial and move on ourselves towards a normal life. And when I say a normal life, I don't even know what that looks like. There are so many possibilities when it comes to this case because there is not very much information at all regarding it. I'm very curious to learn what you guys have to say about this case. So please, please, please go to my post about this case on Instagram at mystery still unsolved and comment, comment, comment. I want to know what you guys are thinking. So what do I think? I think the parking lot was busy that day because of the upcoming holiday. The girls had to park kind of far out on the second level. We know that the girls went to the car to drop off some gifts. Is it possible that a security guard or a man or men pretending to be security guards offered the girls a ride back to the mall? And then the girls met with foul play. Some people are amazed that more people didn't come forward saying that they had seen the girls this day, but I disagree. I think if you're shopping for Christmas, you've got like a lot on your mind. You probably got your Christmas list with your cousins and your aunts and your sisters and your sister-in-laws, and you're probably just rushing around. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that people would have been like in their own little world and just like not really paying close attention like they might have had it been any other time of year. If the girls were alive today, Rachel would be 62, Renee would be 59, and Julie would be 54. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of these girls or know of somebody who has any information regarding the disappearance of these girls, I mean, a lot of drunken stupors have released a lot of information. Maybe you got some weird uncle that like, said he did it once after a couple of Heinekens, you are urged to call the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-469-8477. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>